Right, good morning, everybody. Good morning, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, I'm just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to to First Peter. It'll be up, or might be up, but it's going to be there. Um, I think First Peter chapter three, and I'm going to read from verse 18 to 22. But it's actually verses uh, 21 and 22 that I'll be concentrating more on, where, where it teaches what Peter says there about baptism. Um, so I'm going to, but I'll read from verse 18. We read, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And then the verses we're going to particularly look at this morning, we looked at those other verses last week, just in case anybody's new today and thinks I'm a bit of a dodger, not looking at those verses. But anyway, we did look at them. And it says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's just come and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the teaching of your word, for the deep things it teaches us, and for the practical things it teaches us, for the things it teaches about what you're looking for in the life of a people who've come to you in faith, who've responded to the gospel and given their lives back as a love offering. Lord, just help us today to hear your word, help us to understand it, and then help us to apply it and be obedient to it. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me share with you a story that I'm sure I've I've shared with some of you on an individual basis, but that I don't think I've shared with the, the congregation as a whole before. And it's a story about the famous evangelist Billy Graham, and that is Billy Graham is sitting quietly in a restaurant one day when a hold-up man comes in brandishing a gun. Okay, he says, I want everyone to file past me and hand me their wallets. When Billy Graham arrives in front of the robber, the, the man recognizes him and motions the evangelist to put his wallet back in his pocket. Put it away, Billy, he says. We Baptists must stick together. <laughs> That's just to demonstrate that in what I, I say this morning, I'm not deluded. I know that Baptists have got their issues and their problems at times. They can be a pretty mixed bag, so let's be humble about it. But I'm actually introducing what I want to say to you now in this way, because the passage that we're looking at here in First Peter has baptism at the very heart of it. And as Baptists, well, we think Baptists, baptism is all important, don't we? So how could I resist an opportunity to look at it? Well, in fact, no. As Baptists, we don't think baptism is all important at all. In fact, we never actually called ourselves Baptists. Rather, as is the case with most nicknames, this is a label that was attached to us by other people, as this was the thing that for them stood out, the first and noticeable thing they could see that was different. But Baptists themselves 
have actually never seen baptism as all-important. We see many other doctrines, and rightly, as far more important. For example, the person and the work of Christ, the, the cross of Christ, the return of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, if we're actually going to push it, our most significant, distinctive doctrine is actually not even baptism. But it's actually our doctrine, our understanding of the church. And that is that we see the church as a gathered group of believers, men and women of faith. Because that's what the church actually means. That's what the word means. The called out people of God. So therefore, necessarily, we we reject any thought of the church resting easily with any kind of mixture of of believer and non-believer. No, as far as we're concerned, and as far as we're able within the limits of our human knowledge, we seek to obtain and to maintain a pure church as far as we're able. Now, insofar as baptism of believers, those who have a, a personal faith in Jesus, is in a sense the door, it's the gateway into the church, then of course we've got to see it as important. It does matter. However, again I say to you that despite what many might presume, baptism is not for Baptists the most important doctrine. But I have decided that it would be good now in the light of this passage that we've got before us just to have a little bit of a look at baptism. We've got some baptismal classes coming up soon. First to have a look at what this passage in particular itself says before giving just a little bit of general teaching about something of that which Baptists actually believe about baptism. And believe you me, this is something that is very much needed. I remember many years ago now, my first pastorate in in Irvine, being involved in a door-to-door neighbourhood survey. And one of the questions that was asked on this survey was what people knew or thought they knew about Baptists. I want to tell you, we got some pretty amazing answers. One man actually said to me at his door, he said, I know, I heard about your man in church last week, John the Baptist. That's who you believe in, isn't it? So I can understood then and continue that as Baptists, we've got to understand and make it clear when the opportunity arises, just what exactly it is and who exactly it is we really do believe in. And by the way, just to make it clear, I did explain to that man that as Baptists, we're as firm believers in Jesus Christ as any people are. So what do these verses, though, in particular, what do they teach us about baptism? Well, let's just read again here from verse 20 and uh, 21 and 22, just, just to remind us of what it says. And it says, And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Peter then is seeing in Noah's experience at the flood a picture of what Christian baptism really means. In that, that the waters of the flood, like baptism, they are a picture of death, of burial, and of resurrection. For the waters buried the earth in judgment, 
And so the waters of baptism are a picture of death, which is God's judgment on sin. But out of the waters came the ark. Noah and his family were saved by faith because they believed God and entered into that ark. And so sinners, men and women, are saved by faith when they trust Christ and become one with him. And baptism, as we rise out of the waters of baptism, this is a picture of the fact that through Christ, we have passed from judgment and death to newness of life and eternal hope in him. That being said then, when we picture baptism from the Bible in this kind of way, in in these kind of terms, as, as passing from death to life, being buried and rising again, akin to being involved in some way in the flood, well then I think it's obvious that baptism, truly biblically practiced, isn't just about a matter of a few drops of water on the forehead, but it really must be, to get a hold of that, that symbolism, it must be through faith, and it must be by immersion. Two other important things that are said here about baptism, two anyway, that are found in verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but that, and this word can be translated in in various ways, either pledge or, or appeal, the pledge or appeal of a good conscience. Now, the two things that this makes clear is first, that baptism is only significant when it's a truly spiritual act. You see, we're not saved by the removal of dirt from the body. We're not saved by then the physical act of baptism itself. No, we are only saved when this is a symbol of a spiritual faith transaction that has taken place between us and the Lord. What this verse also makes clear, or at least points us in the right direction toward, is just what the nature of this spiritual transaction is. And, and that's actually found in that word that can alternatively be translated pledge or appeal. For you see, if that word means appeal, then what it's saying, what it means, is that in baptism, as we are baptized, we're saying to God, by that act, please, Lord, as I enter into this baptism, which will cleanse my body outwardly, I ask you, please, at the same time, to cleanse my heart inwardly, to forgive my sins, to make me right before you. However, pledge, the alternative, is a a legal term. And you see, at the time this letter was written, when a person was, was signing a contract, he would be asked, do you pledge to obey and to fulfill the demands of this contract. Do you pledge that? Are you ready to do that? And they had to say yes or the contract couldn't be signed. And so in the same way, converts who were being prepared for baptism would be asked if they intended to obey God, intended to serve God, intended to break with their sinful past and seek with all their power to live under his lordship. And if they weren't ready to do that, 
then they could not be baptized, for they could not pledge a good conscience towards God. Now, I believe the fact that Peter uses a word here that can be translated in either of these ways might well be deliberate, because both of these actually are vital aspects of what's involved in baptism from our human perspective. Both that we make an appeal to God to cleanse us within, to empower us to live for him, and that we pledge ourselves with all of our strength to seek to live for his glory. Now, I don't want to be provocative or or sound superior here, but it does strike me that it is difficult, in fact, I would say impossible in my view, to fit what's being said here about baptism in with the practice of infant baptism. For how can a helpless infant make a pledge and, and an appeal to God? How can that be done? How can they come in faith? Now surely what all this underlines is that believers' baptism, baptism contracted by faith through immersion, is the truly biblical way. It ties in with the picture that the Bible presents. But that's what this passage in particular says about baptism. Let me just move on to say just a little bit about what we believe in general terms baptism signified. For as Baptists, we do believe that, that baptism bears witness symbolically to what has actually happened spiritually in our life. That's what we believe. And by symbolically, I don't mean that this is a, a kind of empty, dead, ritual event. Sometimes it might be practiced in some traditions like that, but not that. No, real Christian baptism is a living spiritual event that points to and that is filled with the power of the living God. So what does baptism in general symbolize then? Let me suggest that first of all, it speaks of commitment to a person. Commitment to a person. Because when someone goes down into that water, they are saying to the world represented by the congregation that gather around at that time, we're saying not that we have found religion, but that Jesus Christ has found us and that we in turn love him. We believe in him and we want to live our lives for him as the son of God, that he now is Lord of our lives and all we want to do above all else in our life is to live our lives in obedience to him. Now that might not be today, as costly, experience, as costly an experience as it once was. For example, for the Jews who lived around the time of, of Jesus and Peter, for them, conversion meant expulsion from their religion, their society, even from their family and their home. And it might not today in our context be as costly as it is in certain other parts of the world. Say in India, where in some areas those who are being baptized actually have to endure the sight and the sound of their friends and relatives standing on the banks of the river as they're being baptized, hissing at them, just to let them know the degree, the extent of the rejection and alienation that from that point on they're going to have to endure. 
And baptism, well, it might not be as costly for us as in this way we commit ourselves to Jesus as it was for a young former Muslim man I met many years ago in a church in London who told me that on becoming a Christian, his family had threatened his life, his family, his father and his brothers, and that he had no doubt that given the opportunity, they would fulfill that threat. But you know, as that young man shared that with me, saddened as he was by that breakdown in relationship with his family, yet he told me that what he had found in Jesus much more than compensated for that. But being baptized today in this country may not arouse that same degree of hostility. However, I want to say to you, there's just the same possibility of misunderstanding. For people can think, and they do sometimes think, that by being baptized, we're saying that we've found religion. And that from now on in, our life is going to be about a whole new set of rules and regulations that will involve in some way the rejection of our past, of our background, even of our family and our friends. Well, I want to say, of course, there are some things that being a Christian does involve the rejection of. That which is sin. We reject that. But there is much more that we want to hold on to. Much more that becomes more, not less important. The love of our family and to love them, the love of our friends, our enjoyment of the good and beautiful things of this life, these things become more important, not less, because our commitment is to a person, to a relationship with a person, not to a religion, not to a set of rules and regulations, a relationship with the positive, loving, life-giving, joyous Jesus Christ of the Bible. The Jesus who, above everything else, loved us so much that he was ready to die on the cross for us. So you see, all we are saying when we get baptized, as simple as this, is that we love this Jesus. And we want to live for him. We want to show something of him to you because we have come to see in him as the Son of God and in his perfect example of humanity, we see in him the way for our lives, the way to live. And that's what we're saying as we get baptized, that we are totally and absolutely committed to him. But as well as commitment to a person, baptism also speaks of commitment to a pattern. Commitment to a pattern of life, to a way of life. For Paul in, in Romans, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 13 to 17, he's talking there about baptism. And he takes it for granted, as he does, that baptism was performed in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name. Now, you see, that phrase was also used in accounting at that time. And in the name of meant basically to the account of. So then in the New Testament, baptism was seen in a sense as a deed of transfer, as an act whereby the person being baptized was handing themselves over to be the property of the person named Jesus. So you see, if by being baptized we are saying we are the property of Jesus, and we are, well then we have an obligation 
By being baptised, we are making a commitment to seek with all our power to commit to a pattern of life that pleases the one we now belong to. And the pattern of life that the Christian commits themselves to is one, as we've seen, with two definite major characteristics. Death and life. Both of these are powerfully symbolised by baptism. But Paul speaks in Romans 6, 1-4 about baptism, and he says in verse 4, he says, We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death. You see, what Paul means as he says this, is that, is, that we, is that we go down under the water in baptism. By doing that, we're symbolizing what happened the moment we became Christians. That is that from that moment, we became spiritually united to Jesus and we share in his life and in everything he's done for us. Now, now particularly as we go down into the water, we are saying that we share in his death. That as Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin, so we are saying we are now dead to sin. Not in the sense that we can never sin again, but in the sense that we no longer are ruled by sin. Sin no longer has dominion and authority over us. And again, that's not to say that we're no longer tempted. It's not to say that we won't at times succumb. But baptism, what it reminds us of, is that we don't anymore have to sin. That we are dead to sin, in that sense, because Jesus Christ has broken sin's power. He has broken sin's authority over us. And you see, this shouldn't just be a theory in the life of a Christian. This should be. It must prove to be a fact, a spiritual reality. And there are just two points that I would like to make here. First, if someone becomes a Christian and doesn't show something at least of this death to sin in their lives, then there is something seriously spiritually wrong in them. There's something wrong. Something's gone wrong. For Paul talks in Romans 6 verse 1 about a question related to whether a Christian can continue to live a life that's dominated by sin after their conversion. And Paul's conclusion is this. Shall we go on sinning? He means mindlessly continuing in sin so that grace may increase. And he says, by no means. We died to sin. That's reality. How can we live in it any longer? You see, for Paul... The thought of a Christian willfully continuing in sin carefree is an impossibility. Simply because if we have truly become Christians, we died to sin. And that is a fact. It's not just some kind of theological statement designed to impress. It's a statement of the spiritual reality. And again, this doesn't mean that Christians cannot sin. It doesn't mean that. In fact, while we're in this body of flesh, we still are very much susceptible to temptation and to sin. But what this death to sin means for the Christian, how this changes our relationship with sin, is again in that we do not have to sin any longer. The dominating power of sin is broken. 
We can still choose to sin, but we no longer have to sin. But also I believe our relationship with sin has changed in the sense that we can no longer carelessly sin. There is no guilt-free sin for the true Christian. We can try and hide from our guilt. We can try and focus on other things to put it out of our minds so we forget it. But to live a life of consistent, guilt-free sin is impossible for the true Christian. Because we have died to sin. And if we return to sin, then our spiritually reawakened conscience, and this is a sign of the grace of God in our lives, will give us no peace. And if you put all this together, then what this death to sin that baptism symbolizes tells us is that in a Christian's life, in our life, if we are a Christian today, then we cannot expect perfection in this life. We cannot demand it of ourselves or demand it of anyone else. But we can expect progress and we should see change. And if we don't see this in someone who once confessed to be a Christian, in a backslidden Christian, if we don't see a degree of brokenness and guilt, then we've got to ask the question, was that person ever truly a Christian at all? Have they maybe had an emotional experience? Have they maybe made an intellectual response to facts shared with them rather than experiencing a life-changing conversion at the core of their being that involves confession, repentance, recognition of Jesus and a commitment of our lives totally to him as Lord? And that's a question, I believe, that we can ask, but it's one that only God is able to answer. Because only he who can search the human heart is equipped to judge. But as well as death, baptism also speaks of, also symbolizes life. And the fact that this should be part of the pattern in the Christian's life is symbolized in baptism by the way that the person baptized rises from the water as Christ rose from the dead. At least they usually do. I've only lost one or two. So you see, and please get this, please get this, the Christian life isn't only, in fact, I believe, isn't even primarily about the things that you shouldn't do, about the things that you should die to. No, it's also very much more about the things you should now do. Because you have a new life in Jesus and the spirit of Jesus lives in you. Because baptism tells us that we share in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And Paul again in Romans 6, this time verse 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too now may live a new life. Our lives then. As Christians, and this is what we're saying in baptism, our lives should be filled with the positive qualities of the living Jesus. His love, his grace, his mercy, his desire for holiness and justice, these qualities, whoa, and a multitude of others, these should be seen in an overwhelming abundance 
in the lives of those committed to Christ, committed to his pattern of life. And baptism is a testimony to this. But as well as commitment to a person and a partner, as well as this, baptism is also about commitment to a people. Because although baptism concerns an individual, yet it isn't an individual act. Now, in the New Testament, baptism is set firmly within the context of the church. In fact, the New Testament practice was that very soon after conversion and perhaps a a brief period of instruction, a person would then be expected to be baptized and then to join the church. In fact, it was the practice in the early church for the people being baptized to stand on one bank of a river And then after their baptism, as they came down into the river and be baptized, they then got out and went to the other bank where the church there stood ready to receive and greet their new brother or sister in Christ. But why is this? Why the people dimension? Because the Lord knows that as frail human beings, we need one another. If we are to grow and flourish in Christ, in the way that is God's desire, we need one another. We need the love and support and care of the church, of each other. We need to receive it. We need to give it. At other times, we need to receive and give love and discipline and correction. We need one another. Sometimes even to rub the rough edges off one another so that together we will grow more and more together into that likeness of Christ. Now you see, in our tragically individualistic, fragmented, selfish, disintegrating society, this today is a truth that that many don't want to hear. They don't want to belong because they don't want to take on responsibility. They don't want, maybe, to have to submit and give up some of their own desires and interests. And because of that, they don't get baptized. They don't join the church. But both they and the church are the weaker and poorer because of that. Well, that's a big commitment, isn't it, that God asks of us in baptism? Commitment to a person, to a pattern, to a people. It's a big commitment. But then, a God who's given everything for us surely has the right to ask something of us in return, does he not? So I ask you today, Are there people here who God is calling to truly commit themselves in a fully biblical way? Calling to go beyond talking about commitment to rather demonstrate their commitment. Perhaps in baptism, perhaps in commitment to his church, to his people. Is this what God is asking? I'm sure he is of some of us today. Let's respond to the God who holds nothing back from us. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you today for your amazing love, for the greatness of that love to us. Father, we thank you that you do give us opportunities to respond to you. And one of these is in that response in baptism, that response in truly being a part of your church. Lord, you held nothing back. Help us now to hold nothing back in return. We pray in Jesus' name.